0: Done around the house, and it was a blessing. Uh, thankful for the guys that we have who filled in. Um, the people who filled in for me this time were people from our church. The Lord just spoke to me and said, "These people we've been training up to do the work of ministry—that they need to do the work of ministry." And so that was our focus while we were gone this time. Anyway, starting at verse nine of First Peter chapter three. "...not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Father, once again, we just lift up the study of your word. Pray, Father, that it's accurately divided and properly received, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, I don't know if you noticed it. The first time I taught this text, which is probably about 12, 15 years ago or whatever, I didn't really focus upon it because I didn't really notice it. But one word, one word that is mentioned six times in the scriptures that I just read, mentioned six times, must be some sort of importance to it because God chose to insert it And that word is the word good. What does the word good mean? The word good, it can mean many things to many people. My wife and I, last night, we went out to dinner, and we both ordered the exact same thing. And I asked her, how did she like her dinner? And she said, it was good. And I had mine, and I thought, it's all right. Well, is it good, or is it all right? You may go there and eat the same thing and think, oh, that was bad, I don't like that. It's up to each person to determine in that particular case what is good and what is bad, at least in their own sight. But biblically speaking, good, good's got to be based upon some sort of standard. And actually, the proper definition of good is that which is, and I want to think of it in this terms for our study, that which is morally correct. Matter of fact, when God created all of creation, what did he say? It is? It is good. It is morally correct. Matter of fact, It was absolutely pure because sin had yet to enter into the equation. And so going back and rereading the verses that I just read, verse 9, and inserting our definition for good, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessings, knowing that you were called to this. "...that you may inherit the blessings for he who would love life and see morally correct days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do that which is morally correct." Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is morally correct? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a morally correct conscience, that when they defend, Fame you as evildoers, those who revile your morally correct conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better, if it is the will of the Lord, for suffer for doing what is morally correct than for doing evil. And the reason I reread that with that term is so that you'd understand that the basis of what is good is that which is biblically, morally correct, and that we do have a standard, and it's not left up to interpretation, because in this world it is good to have gay marriage. It is good to abort babies. Now it's good to abort babies just even minutes before they are born, at least in the state of New York. Matter of fact, what man is doing now, he's calling evil good, and he calls what is good evil. And so we have to stay rooted and grounded in the basis of what we know, the foundation of what we know for good, because what is morally correct never changes. Man may try to do it, but in the sight of God... It it, it never changes. It's that which is sure and steadfast. Why? Because it's the anchor of our soul. Because as we follow these things that are written through in scriptures, then, well, my conscience is put at ease. Because every time I sinned, even every time I sinned and justified it somehow by proclaiming some bad thing to be good, it still vexed my conscience. And every time I sinned, there was never, ever, any peace in what was sinful. But as I followed what is scripturally or biblically, morally excellent, I've had perfect peace within my life. There seems to be a great contradiction in the Bible, something that does not make sense to the natural man, but something as you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll come to understand. We see it in other places in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed or content are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we're promised in the midst of all of that contentment, contentment in the midst of confrontment, that as we are doing the Lord's work, as we're following through in obedience in Jesus Christ, God's in it, God's with us, God protects us, he watches over us, and he keeps us. And I think this message is just as poignant today as it was back in Peter's day, and maybe even more so as we see the world going biblically upside down, opposed to the things of the Lord, that we will continue steadfastly in what we know to be good or biblically, morally correct. Last time we met, we started to look at Peter's final instructions as far as submitting to suffering. We saw that suffering back then, well, Christians were suffering as persecution was starting in Rome. Christians were sewn into lambskins because, well, you want to be the Lamb of God, and then, well, Nero would throw them to the lions. Baptism, he would baptize them in burning oil. As far as lights, he would soak them in paraffin, and he would light them aflame. And again, this, this vicious persecution had started. Why? Because these people were focused upon what is good, and they were suffering because they are in complete opposition to the world, in which, again, good is bad, and bad is evil. Suffering today, for the most part, our suffering today, just that which makes us uncomfortable, but... I can really see the direction that society is heading to. I think suffering is going to be some of the suffering that we have seen in the past. It's going to increase. What are you willing to do for your faith? What price are you willing to pay for the one who has paid the ultimate price for you? We are to die to our desires. We are to die to our wishes and we are to die to our wants. But what happens when you are called to give of your life? Give of your physical life, for your beliefs, for what is truly morally excellent. That'll be a hard one. It's one that I believe nobody here can really answer until the situation presents itself. And so last time we saw in verses 8 through 12, maturity and the necessity for teamwork in the body of Christ. Today, what is necessary? To have a prepared conscience. We'll see it in verses 13 through 17, and then next week we'll see a price paid for glory, verses 18 through to the end of the chapter, verse 22. And so, we saw back in verse 10, do you want to see long, long life and good days? Well, again, last week or last time we saw, well, then you need to be a mature team player. Now, To have a place of protection in God's kingdom and a prepared conscience, what is necessary? A place of protection that God would watch over our soul. Again, man may harm us physically, but it's God who keeps us spiritually. And a prepared conscience that I would have peace in the midst of all that is going on. Well, we'll see in this second instruction as our place of protection or contentment, and a conscience that makes it valid in our lives today. We're going to be looking at three places of protection, and today we're going to be sealing it with the communion meal. And this is all about doing what God has called us to do, as in most messages, simply being obedient to the Lord, but maybe even looking a little bit deeper in what it means to be obedient, and the basis of our obedience. So let me ask you, what is your purpose for coming to church today? What is your purpose for coming to church today? Two main things as far as from my perspective. Are you coming to church to continue to practice to, or maybe even to become a better sitter and hearer? To maybe become an expert sitter and a purer for some reason? To hear what the pastor has, I, you know, whatever. You get what I'm trying to say. Or is it to learn the things in order to do the things? And, and that's the key. And, and that's the only place that we're going to have contentment in this life, as we're faithful and obedient servants. It's a disobedient servant that hears the orders, but never gets up and does what God has called them to do. And so the question, what are you prepared to do? In the midst of this perverse generation, what are you prepared to do? In the midst of your attacks, the attacks against your children in the schools today, what are you prepared to do? In a corrupt political system, I don't really care what side of the aisle you're on, what are you prepared to do? How are you prepared to vote? How are you best prepared to represent Christianity out into that fallen world? It's that which I'd like you to consider today. So, places of protection in the midst of perversities of the world. Well, first, be a follower of what is good. And again, what is biblically, morally Correct. Verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? This is for your general life and to be patterned after goodness or rightness or what is of the Lord. Keep in mind the Anglo-Saxon term for Anglo-Saxon term for God is the good. And the, you know, the, that, that, that word itself, it can be used in the old, old English as the good. And God is the ultimate in good. And so we see God as far as our standards that we are to hear, adhere to. So to determine in your heart to do what is good regardless of the cost. Second Thessalonians 3.13 But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing what is morally excellent. Do not grow weary in following through in the instruction when you're sitting there and God hits your heart. And say, damn, he was talking to me today. Follow through on that. Take that. Embrace it. Take it out of here. Because the things that God has called you to do, God will enable you to do. And God has purpose for you to do it out in the world. And and so again... If God takes the time and the effort, which he never ceases, he's always faithful, in order to convict you of whatever it is that you might be convicted of, and I guarantee you the amount of people that hear this sermon, both here in the sanctuary, there's going to be close to 200 people that will watch it on the internet. God's going to enable each person to hear it based upon where they are at in their Christian lives and in their general lives. But the reason he does it is for the purpose of change. But God doesn't want to change you necessarily just to change you. He wants to change you for his purposes in the lives of others. And so if you're praying, God, use me, well, maybe the first step in God using you is God changing you. And I won't even say maybe, it for sure is. God does that work within us in order to do that work through us. And so I have to continue on and being especially in this generation to be a follower of what I know to be morally excellent in this life. And the only place for excellence is in the Bible. It's in the Holy Scriptures. And so as I see this world taking a U-turn, going upside down, however it is that you want to explain it, I've got to continue to cut that straight line. Remember what he told Joshua when he was entering into the promised land? He he was the first one, as I pointed out many times, he was the first leader to have the written word of God. And God said, don't veer off to the left. Don't become overly liberal concerning uh, the word of God. Don't go off to the right. Don't be overly conservative or legalistic, I guess I should say, in the word of God. But just cut that straight path. Cut that straight path in a manner of love love and compassion, but also in dedication to God's word. Because as we do that, that we do well in representing God to, again, to this generation. Instead of complaining, we need to be working, we need to be giving, we need to be sacrificing. It's important to do good, even if you cannot see the good that comes about from what you're doing. Why? Because we live by faith. There's an example, Winston Churchill And it was concerning his quote, concerning the rise of Nazi Germany. He wrote after the war, it was in the face of such a threat that we rightly deplore doing nothing. And the church is being threatened today. What is biblical, moral, biblically correct is under threat today. It's being attacked today. Are we going to have that same mindset one day when we wake up and look around us and see how corrupt everything truly is? that it was in the face of such a threat that we rightly deplore doing nothing? Are we going to wait until our kids or our grandkids are consumed in the evil of the world and one day wake up and regret that we had done nothing, that we had not prayed, that we had not, not only consumed the word of God, maybe you displayed yourself at church, but I'm talking about home, not only consume, didn't consume the word of God, but also didn't do the word of God, I guarantee you, one day you will wake up and you will have that mindset, that regret of rightly uh, deploring that you did nothing under such a great, under such a great attack. And it's through th- the knowledge of this that we must move forward in who God has called us to be. Christianity has to be real in our lives. They can't just be good things that are said from a pulpit. They have to be valued things that are digested into a life and that are produced out in the world because that and only then, then and only then, is when change is going to come about. It's been said that those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. So this being the case, be followers of, Of what is good. Now, I really think that the translators did a little bit of a disservice, and there's actually a couple parts because really verses 13 through 17 read in the original language a lot stronger than what they have interpreted as. When he says, Be a follower of what is good, you know, follower, you can just kind of think, you know, my dog follows me. You know, am I just supposed to kind of just follow along? Well, in the original language, what he's saying is, be a good zealot for what is of God. Be a good zealot for what God has given you. And to be a zealot speaks of passion. Follower can speak of a lackadaisical life. But make no mistake about it, that word follow is for us to be passionate about what God has given us to do. Because what you're passionate about, you're going to be vocal. And people are going to see and people are going to know. There's going to be a time, it's coming up in a week, that people's passions are going to be displayed. It's called Super Bowl Sunday. And they're going to be dressed up with blue on their face. They're going to be wearing the jersey and going to the parties and the whole thing for something that makes not a lick of difference for anything. I'm not putting it down. Hey, if if I didn't have to work next Sunday, I'd probably watch the Super Bowl. Actually, last week I watched the playoff games. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, I'm not saying that that's sin, because it's not. But I just want you to get that picture of what we are passionate about, that'll be seen through our lives. And again, this stadium is going to be filled with passionate people who aren't afraid to express what's within their hearts But unfortunately, again, it's for no heavenly purpose. Secondly, the second place of protection that we have out in the world is to keep things in their proper perspective. Look over at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. It's easy to say, it'd be very hard to do, but... It's easy to believe when you understand the dynamic relationship that we are to have with God. I understand I use that term a lot, and I've come to understand that a lot of people don't necessarily realize the terms. A dynamic relationship with God. A dynamic, you can have a relationship. I can have a relationship with millions of people on the internet. But I have a dynamic relationship with my wife. We're there. We're living together, and what I mean by living together, experiencing life together, there's there's this dynamic to it of experience and 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 that which which causes just change within my life and change within her life and influencing one another. That's a dynamic relationship, and so we are to have this dynamic relationship. With God, and you need to see it from that perspective, understanding Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, and that God is to have the priority. Now, there are two effects that fear is able to have upon a person. First, it can paralyze you. It can cause you to either just stop, to retreat, or to quit. And it's usually something bigger and stronger than you are that you come up against and you realize, I have, nothing, I have nothing to come up against that with. But it's when you come to the understanding that your God fights for you that you're able to overcome that which is bigger and stronger than you. Matter of fact, over 300,000 Christians a year recognize that. There was over 300,000 Christians who were martyred for their faith last year. And that's kind of beyond us. What? I didn't hear, hear, hear of any of that. Well, in the media today, number one, you're not going to, but most of it is out there on the mission field. It's in areas that you're not necessarily going to hear about it from. It's those who have heard the message, who have embraced the message, and are taking the message out even to the ends of the earth. And so, yes, there are still today are born-again believers that are killed for their faith, Now, again, Super Bowl Sunday, I don't know how many people the stadium holds, give or take, 80,000. Just think, over three times more than that in one year are killed for their faith. That's an amazing number when you think about it. So, fear, it can paralyze you. It can paralyze you, it can cause you to become afraid, or it can drive you. To overcome your fears, to have that fear of failure based upon a fear of God. Now, a proper fear of God causes us to serve him because of the respect and honor that we have for him. So to have a fear of man is to be vulnerable and manipulated. To fear God is to be protected and to be used. And really what you need to see is, is the difference in two words, afraid versus fear. Fear speaks, again, as I said, of respect. Afraid, afraid is that which we visually see and emotionally causes us to have that which, as I said earlier, become paralyzed in what we have been called to do. Usually it's based upon the physical, based upon that which we see. Thirdly, third place of protection that we have in the world is to be a star. What does that mean? Well, I'm basing this on Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, take it out of a star and look at the moon, because it doesn't really make sense to be a moon, but be a star. But look at the moon. Last week, I think it was last week, didn't we have that, was it blood red moon or whatever it was? The moon was huge and the moon was bright. And that moon I even saw it during the day, but it wasn't so bright during the day. Why? Because at night it had that dark background. And it had that dark background that really caused it to pop out. So that when you saw it, it was like, whoa, look at that. Well, that's what we are to have. We are to be stars. We are to be emitting, well, reflecting the glory of God to this world. How do we best do that? Against a dark background. And behold... We live in a background in a world that is very dark today. And so we must consider once more, how brightly are we shining? How brightly are we shining? Again, it's not my own that I am to emit, my own glory that I am to emit, but I am to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ to this world. And I was going to say unfortunately, but it was by the Lord's doing. I have, an, I have the decision to make or the opportunity to do. I condemn that glory or I can magnify that glory. Which are we doing today? Again, we must consider. Look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Notice that which we are to give an explanation of is the hope that we have within us. How can you give an explanation of the hope that is in you if the hope isn't in you? And so you must first make the determination, do I really have that hope? And again, I'll repeat it as I seemingly always do. Faith is trusting in God for today. Hope is trusting in God for tomorrow. Hope is the future that we have, that we've been promised in Jesus Christ. And I believe it to such a degree, we need to believe it to such a degree that it drives us in this life. It's the great hope that I have that he has gone to prepare a place for me. That when I die, when I close my eyes here, I open them in the presence of the Lord. And it's because of that I'm willing to move forward even in the face of fear because I know God will overcome and regardless I'm his. And one day he is going to bring me unto himself. And we've seen great many people throughout history who have done that. Look at all of the apostles. Only one died a natural death, and even he gave his life here on earth for God's purposes, and all the others were martyred for their faith. Why? Because they believed these things with all of their heart and with all of their soul. They weren't always like that, but neither were we. But there was a change that came about their life, and as the change came about in their life, it ministers to people even 2,000 years today. You can look at Peter's life. Peter, in the Gospels, it's like, God, you made your very first mistake in choosing that guy. He never does anything right. He's a fool. He's kind of like me. He's kind of like us. But then you see this man filled with the Spirit. And you see this man who is a man of the Word. Again, in Acts chapter 1, you see Peter visiting the Word time and time again, and and after that as well. But in chapter 2, he's filled with the Spirit. And again, he's touching lives even through to today because notice the book that we're in. And so, do you want to be able to touch lives for the future even after the days of your time here on earth? Do that which is good. Do that which is morally correct, which God has commanded us through the the Bible. And as we do these things, it's then that lives are changed and as we're obedient to the Lord. So, This is what we are to give an explanation of the hope that is within us. Why? Why are we to give an explanation of the hope that is within us? Because it's what the world doesn't have, and it's what the world needs. Why? Because unbelievers have no hope in the future. They have no hope in the future whatsoever Augustine said a heart will be restless till it finds peace with God but they have no peace with God and as the Holy Spirit has convicted them of sin righteousness and judgment they know that judgment is coming because they are sinners and that there is a God out there in Romans chapter 15 verse 13 now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy spirit when i understand my future and i that future my hope is in god it's then and only then that i'm able to have perfect peace within this life the world doesn't have it although it desperately searches for it secondly why you have a reason for the hope that is within us because unbelievers are desperately lonely They're desperately lonely. Their relationships are just in it for what they're able to get from one another. Man, man by nature is, if you will, for lack of a better term, is a pack animal. We draw together in teams and clubs, associations, support groups, and all of these things. But really what those things have taken the place of, for the most part, is what we're experiencing right now, church come to church for so many reasons. Number one needs to be the word of God, but number two has got to be the fellowship and the support that I have from one another, that I'm able to talk to people in the times of suffering, seasons of suffering that I go through, I can talk to somebody who maybe has gone through the same season that I have gone through and see how God has worked in their lives and understand how he's able to work in my life, that we're able to pray for one another, to lift one another up. If Cynthia Darby, the person that we prayed for before service, if she was a member of a club, had no relationship with God, are they going to be lifting her up? I don't even know how they would lift her up. Uh, I hope she makes it through okay. That's about the best they got to offer. That's the best that they have. We understand that we're able to entreat the mighty God. Remember what we said before or sang before service? He's mighty to save. Well, he's mighty to heal as well. As a matter of fact, it just seems to be this season that I just see God doing so many things through prayer. I see him healing people. I see him doing things in people's lives. I see the answered prayer that have come across the prayer chain and so on and so forth. And there's where our hope is, because we have this true fellowship with one another. Acts 2.47, and the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. Why speak of our hope? Because unbelievers are painfully guilty. They're painfully guilty. Even though they don't want to call sin anymore, call sin sin anymore, they still understand. There's still the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And there will always be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Once again, that's why they don't like Christianity. Why? Because you speak of Jesus. Now, if they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus, who cares? Who cares if somebody speaks of them, just some lunatic babbling on? But the problem is there's the conviction in the Holy Spirit as we speak of the Word of God, as we speak of Jesus Christ. And it hurts. And they don't want to hear about it. And they're tired of hearing about it. Why? Because they're tired of having their conscience vexed all the time. And so they want to put it to death. You know, enough with this prayer stuff. Why enough with the prayer stuff? Because it convicts them. Enough with the religious stuff. Because the religious stuff, when it's based upon God's Word, it convicts them. Enough of you sharing the word of God or avoiding you because you convict them. And so they're painfully guilty and it hurts. And it hurts and they want the pain to go away. It's why self-medication is so uh, popular in our society today. Why speak of our hope? Because unbelievers are filled with anxiety. What if you knew that there was a train coming down the track? What if you knew you were tied to that track? And upon that track, you thought, at some point, I'll just untie myself and get up off the track. And even as you hear, or you could probably on the rail, feel the rumblings of the train, maybe even hearing the whistle afar of off, and you know that train's a-coming, and you have chosen to soothe your, your, your pain by thinking that, ah, I'll just untie myself. But deep down inside, you know you can't. you you know that that train is going to come and it's not going to be a a, a pretty picture. And so, just can you imagine on that track, you're not going to have too many restful nights of sleep. You're not going to have peace and you're not going to have contentment because you know the train is coming. Now, you may have friends that come and give you a pillow. They'll set up a TV for you there. They'll come and they'll visit and they'll entertain you and all of these things give you some, you know, medical marijuana and they'll give you something to drink and all of this stuff. But it doesn't negate the fact the train is coming. And when the train comes, you're dead. You're dead. And it's going to be a horrible death. I can imagine the closer that people get to death, the more that anxiety is there. As that train is 10 feet away. As that train is 5 feet away. As that train is a foot away. As you start to feel the front of that train touch your body. And just the anxiety as it builds as you come towards the end. And just that moment before death. You wish you could go back and still have the 20 years before the train arrives. But you can't because the train is there right now. You could still call out to God at that very moment. And he will release you from the tracks and take you unto himself. But it's at that time that so few people do. And so this world, this world is filled with anxiety. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. As much then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. Have you ever played Russian roulette? Anybody? Don't raise your hand if you have. (laughs) I haven't either, but I can imagine. But that's what the world is playing. That's what the world is playing. Ever have a dream that you jumped out of the airplane and your parachute wouldn't open? That's the anxiety that the world has. Men, have you ever forgotten your wife's birthday? (laughs) It was my wife's birthday this week. And guess what? I didn't forget it because <laughs> I'm not going to go there. But what the Bible tells us in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, seeking God out with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God takes care of his children, but who takes care of the orphan? The answer to that is nobody. The orphan in this particular case, if they refused Father God, they're on their own. Sanctify the Lord God. Now, once again, in my Bible, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God, there's an asterisk there because there are other manuscripts that have a little bit different uh, verbiage. It doesn't change the meaning of the verse, but I think it adds power to the verse. When you have an asterisk in your Bible, if you look down below, it will usually tell you what this alternate reading could be. And that alternate reading, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your life. And I really believe that adds a lot more punch to what is being said here. If Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, sanctify him as Lord of your life. What does it mean to sanctify him? To be sanctified is to be separated. Separate Jesus Christ as Lord in your life from anything else that has influence. Because anything else that has influence is not good or is not morally correct. And so sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify Him as the one who guides you, as the one who directs you, as the one who commands you, and the one who calls you. As you do that, you'll do well. And so, but sanctify the Lord God, or sanctify Christ as Lord in your life, and... In your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that should be the purpose, not just to sit in a pew here today, not just to hear words, but be well prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Because it's when you give that reason for the hope that is within you, it's when you get into the fight or get into the ball game. it's then that you'll see God do things that you've never seen God do in your life. If you are unwilling to submit to Christ as Lord, why would you think that you have submitted to him as Savior? Lord and Savior, just simply go hand in hand. And if you truly have submitted to him as your Savior, if you are unwilling to take up your cross and follow him, why do you think that you will be able to wear a crown and walk on streets of gold in the future? And so all of these things must follow through. See, Jesus Christ is my Savior. I have to do that but also to submit to him as the Lord of my life. If I'm unwilling to submit to him as the Lord of my life, then why would I think that I truly have submitted to him as Savior? I only have perfect peace as I have this perfect balance within my life. Now there is one thing that is going to hinder you from being a star and keeping you from shining brightly. Verse 16, having a good or a morally excellent conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your morally excellent conduct in Christ may be ashamed. The hindrance of bad conscience, a bad conscience from immoral conduct, a bad conscience from that which is not biblically correct. Conscience is your ear for the Holy Spirit. And the only way to truly love life and to see good days is to be able to hear from God. But there's a problem in the church today concerning conscience. And I just want to look at these Definitions that the Bible gives us quickly because we've got to get to communion. But look at these definitions of a conscience, or maybe these hindrances to a conscience that the Bible speaks of, that we would know that we're not fitting in any of these categories. That I would truly have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, keep in mind when the Bible does say, it says in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, have an ear what the Spirit says to the church, He's not talking to a building. He's talking to the people in the church. Okay, but anyway, for some, conscience, their conscience is defiled. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their mind and conscience are defiled. The idea is, is that the window is dirty. You're not seeing clear, or in this particular case, you're not hearing clear. I can't see clearly through a dirty window. We were going out yesterday and my wife said, I want the car washed. I had kind of gotten busy and neglected it for a little bit and she let me know that she wanted a clean car. So I went, took the car to the car wash, and I'm driving home thinking, wow, this is amazing. Everything looks so much more pure. Well, same thing. If I've muddied things up by bad conduct, I'm not going to see clearly. Secondly, For others, their conscience is seared. Uh, First Timothy chapter four, verse two and their own conscience seared with a hot iron. This is an association with sin that causes, if you will, the deadening of nerves. When you burn your hand, your body's protection system kicks in. Because what happens? Well, that which burns, it causes pain, but then there's a deadening of the nerves for a period of time or you'd be experiencing that high degree of pain for quite a long time. Something that was considered... in that we need to consider is that as I allow sin to enter into my life, there's that comes that constant deadening and deadening. Maybe that sin that caused me to rear back and to be repulsed at one point in my life. Now all of a sudden is okay. Again, we see that in society. We see again. For instance, a a homosexual relationship, that in the 50s and 60s, it was something that was just beyond us, and today it is something that is accepted. And there's just very many more areas of sin that we see this coming to pass. Thirdly, for some, their conscience is poisoned. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is to mix your bathtub. Well, maybe your your water kind of ran out before it got right to the height that you like it to be. And knowing, well, there's some water in the toilet. Why don't I just take a little bit of water out of the toilet and put it in my bathtub? Then it will be up to the height that it would be. Well, if I drew a bath for you and told you that's what I did, you probably, hopefully, wouldn't get into it. Well, I can poison my conscience the same way. Just a little bit of human wisdom goes a long way to defile everything. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. And then lastly, verse 17, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing which is morally excellent than for doing evil. For some of us, there will be a season of suffering for doing what is good. But it is the will of God. And if it is the will of God, there's absolutely no better place to be. And so, just remembering, remembering first now the one who has suffered for us the communion meal, the communion meal that Christ told us to periodically partake of that we would never forget. We would never forget the roots and the foundation of our salvation. You can turn in your Bibles, or you can put your Bible away and just listen, but into Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20 will be our text for communion here today. And he took bread, the Lord Jesus Christ, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So of this Passover meal... We've taken these two parts or portions of the Passover meal, and Luke has decided to isolate them and showing us what was going on there. And the first one, in verse 19, once again, when he took the bread, this is the dipping of the matzah. This is the middle matzah, which is broken into pieces and given to each person. The matzah then is, as we would get, you know, like an appetizer, you get bread before you eat. The matzah is dipped in horseradish and an apple mixture. It symbolizes the sweetness of God's redemption and the bitterness of sin and his death as well. And so we see Christ upon the cross. We see the suffering that Christ did, but we see the magnitude of love that God expressed towards us. There's a bitterness to it, but there's an ultimate sweetness to it as well. The bread of life as he was dipped into that horrible yet pleasurable mixture next is the third and fourth cups of wine now notice here in verse 20 likewise he also took the cup after supper and so there was the eating of the passover lamb in between that which is not addressed but then this is after and you have these last two cups of wine the third cup of wine is called the cup of redemption This is the cup that we partake of at the communion meal. Again, verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It's after the drinking of this cup that a child is sent to the front door to hopefully welcome in Elijah, because Israel was constantly looking for Messiah. Well, here we have this great changeover from the Passover meal to the communion meal. Why? Because Messiah has come. There would still be a fourth cup that would be that was to be poured. This would be the cup of acceptance or praise. This is the cup that he said he would not drink of until they all did so in the heavenly kingdom. This is a future cup to be drinking. Matthew 26:29, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom." So what we need to see here is the dipping of the bread. And see what happened back on Mount Calvary. When Christ gave himself and went to that cross, there was a bitterness, but there was a sweetness to it. There was that third cup. There's that constant reminder today that my sins have been washed away by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak of the blood, we're in essence speaking of his death. But then there was that fourth cup. We all will be invited to that great wedding feast in the future. As he said, he will not partake of it until the future. But he did say, with all of my disciples, that is a cup that we will drink in the future. But as for today, we're going to partake of the communion meal. The worship team will come up. I'm a little late in calling them up. But as the worship team leads us in song, if you will, come on up. Grab the elements of communion, take them with you, sit down and hold on, don't partake until we all have them and then we'll partake together.
1: Nothing more.
2: Your presence your presence, oh God, your presence
1: let us become more aware of your presence, let us experience the glory.
0: Father, once again, we're at that time of the month that we hold these elements in our hands. And I just pray, Father, that we would realize that it's not so much the holding of the elements in our hands, but it's the possession of them that we have within our hearts. That, Father, truly we are a people who believe. And that, Father, the things that we believe become part of the fabric of who we are. And as we consume these, the picture is is that it has become this belief in the the body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that was spilt upon the cross is what we are all about. And that, Father, we have become those new creations in Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a dynamics, an earmark of those who have come to faith in Christ. It's even a command that we would celebrate this communion meal. And so, Father, we celebrate it in faith. We celebrate it understanding, Lord, of what you have given us for this day, that you will provide for us, you will watch over us, and never leave us nor forsake us. But we also celebrate it with a great hope, and this great hope speaks of an assurance that we have that, yes, we will one day go to be where you are. And so, Lord, we just rejoice in every, every aspect of your word, God, that it guides us and protects us, that it teaches us and instructs us for that which is morally, biblically, morally correct. We just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and partake. Go ahead and stand, please. a couple of announcements um, we are taking still taking sign ups for the couples valentine 's banquet. I really believe that the Lord has laid a message upon my heart for the couples of this church, so I encourage you to come that night. Um, I hope through the message given to give you some very practical things concerning marriages, marriages that are doing well and maybe even some marriages that aren't doing well. Um, as with all things, if you can't afford it, we never want cost to prohibit anybody from Um, receiving of what God has for them. So if there's a problem, uh, just speak to the person at the information booth, but just get your name on the list. We do need to get people signed up just for the fact of recognizing how many people are coming. As I stated at the beginning of service, high schoolers may even be on the way home even right now. Yes, you do have to come and pick them up and take them home if you're a high school parent, but um, just continue to pray that they finish well, that they travel well, and for the work that God has done in their hearts up on that mountain would follow through here in this valley. And then lastly, if you have signed up for a tax receipt, it is at the information booth. Just see the person at the information booth and they will give it to you. If you haven't signed up or you signed up after last Sunday, it will be available by next Sunday. God bless you guys. It's good to be back.
3: live. Have a good day, everyone.